Father, there's not much to add to those prayers that you uh, remind us of the frailty of life and the things that hold us together, we know, is your word, as you say in, in your word, and we just praise you for that. We praise you for the answer to prayers. The We also pray concerning unspoken prayers, things that only we know. We commit them to you. Keep Dwayne and his wife in, in our prayers as well. Desire that you would uh, work in her to give her a desire to get into your word, a desire to even know you if she doesn't know you, desire to be on the same page as, as Dwayne. So we de- we desire that for, for him and for her. This morning we desire as we get into your word, as was prayed as well, that uh, it would come alive to us, that we would know how to not only apply it, but how it would transform us to be more and more like like you as your will desires, and we commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're back in chapter 7, Book of Romans, book that Paul writes to the church at Rome, photograph I showed you last week showing where he spent his last days on the second imprisonment. It's not in the book of Acts, that's the first imprisonment. So Paul would have been in Rome seeing a lot of the sites that those that went on the Israel trip were able to see. In fact, we walked near there. I don't know if you remember that on the way out of the Roman Forum, Linda. You remember that? We didn't point it out, but Mamertine Prison right there in the background is the uh, ancient temple, the Saturn. I think it was built in 500 BC or so. Just a few shots to remind us that the book of Romans was written to real people at a real place in time, but also inspired and given to us that live in the 21st century, that we may profit from what God had to say to the Romans, because what he says to them is applicable to us as well. Just another photograph of Colosseum. Paul would have seen the construction of that. It was completed shortly after his execution. So we're looking at sanctification, chapter 6 through 8. We've completed chapter 6, dealing with the principles. Now we're dealing with problems that we encounter as we try to live out the life. So chapter 7, the problems. The emphasis of the first 12 verses is an issue that comes up when you try to live the Christian life. In fact, it's very common amongst believers to come up with a list of do's and don'ts. In other words, the Christian life, well, I live the life. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't go out with women to do, etc. <laughs> so I've got all the boxes checked. In the first century, the issue was obedience to the law. And there was a Jewish culture. In fact, most of the believers at the time that the book of Romans was written were Jewish believers. So you send the guy to Israel and he comes with... Uh, he what? So you send the guy to Israel and he comes Yes, that's right. Actually, he's trying to be like you, I think. I'm not. I gave him a good advice. He just likes to look a lot. That's <laughs> Good. Where was I? 
Oh, that's right. <laughs> so our tendency is to try to do things to please God. We defined that as legalism last time. In fact, last time I gave you several, well, not several, but a few distortions in relationship to the law. How do we relate to the law as believers? I'll review a little of that, and then we'll move further into the passage to get the emphasis of beginning in verse 7. But 1 through 12, the law cannot sanctify. In other words, we are not conformed to the image of Christ by trying to do the things that not only the Old Testament teaches, but you could include New Testament law because there's commandments there as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we're free to just abandon those commandments, either Old or New Testament. That's called antinomianism. We talked about it as well and defined it. In fact, Paul himself was accused of antinomianism, and the reason he's writing this is to show the proper perspective on the law, the proper view of the law. So that's what we're looking at. But 7, 1 through 6, we are released from the law in Christ. And I'll review what that means. But in essence, when Christ died on the cross, he essentially fulfilled... And through his life, he fulfilled the essence of the law. And when we come into a relationship with him, what Paul is doing in 1 through 6 is giving us an analogy, an analogy of marriage. When one partner in the marriage dies, that releases the parent that's alive, and they can choose to remarry if they so desire, or they can choose to remain single. That's the analogy that he's using. And he's going back to chapter 6 and saying that we experience a death, a real death in Christ. In fact, we're baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that death, now we are free from that old covenant, you might say, that old relationship. And in the first century, Jews were now freed from the law. They were released from it. And now they are married to someone else. They're married to Christ. And that introduces a whole new era and a whole new pattern and a whole new way of relating to God that is different from the Old Testament dispensation. So we're released from the law. And you might get the impression that, well, there must be something wrong with the law then. Because everywhere he talks about the law, he's talking about sin and he's talking about death and we're freed from the law, does that mean the law is negative, the law is bad, or something wrong with the law? Well, in 7 through 11, he's given the proper view of the law. And last time, I gave you a quick review of what we did before the trip to Israel, where I laid out basically the attitude, the proper attitude from the Old Testament, the value of the law. We looked at several passages there. In fact, I'll remind you of one of them when we get into the text here. So the law has great value, and I'll review a little bit of that in a moment. So the proper view of the law, 7 through 11, he starts with raising the issue. What about the law? Is there something wrong with the law? 7, 7a, you might say, or the first part of verse 7. And that brings us to... A new set of principles, I'm not going to go over all of these, but I reviewed them a couple of weeks ago. The principles that we developed from chapter 6, 
Grace is involved in our sanctification. In other words, the principles of sanctification. Death to sin is a new reality. We died with Christ. The emphasis of the first few verses in chapter 6 is knowing certain truths. So knowledge of truth is crucial. And the heart of it is unity with Christ is the essence of the new life and the key and the essence to sanctification. But we have a problem with the old nature. That's chapter 7. So he's going to expand that. He hinted about it in chapter 6. And now in chapter 7, he's expanding it. The old nature is the obstacle to sanctification. But the alternative, there's victory over sin, and that's possible in Christ. We emphasize the idea of being in Christ because we are united with him, number four there. Number seven, it involves faith. That would be 611. Considering these truths to be true, reckon them to be true. Or put them to your account, you might say, the accounting word that we looked at. So it involves faith in our new identity. Eight, it involves our obedience to a new master. We're always a slave. We were a slave to sin before we trusted in Christ. We were freed from sin because we died. But that doesn't free us to do whatever we please, whatever we want, because we now are married to someone new, and in essence, he uses the common imagery of slavery in that last part of chapter 6. So it involves an obedience to a new master, a benevolent master, a good master that only has our goodness in mind. And then it's the last principle that we looked at is this obedience, not in a legalistic way, but this relationship is what produces Christ-likeness. That's the essence of sanctification. So we can summarize two new principles from the beginning of chapter 7. So number 10, the church aid believers are not under law. Now we could have said that earlier. We could have said that in chapter 5 because that's where the phrase comes from. We are not under law. So we've been trying to explain what does that mean, and we'll expand upon it further from the passage. We also saw from the passage we've already looked at that law was never intended to sanctify, and in fact, it cannot sanctify. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 12. So the law was never intended to and cannot sanctify, and if we get Far enough into the passage, I'll give you a twelfth principle. I got a question. Trust. I want to hear what you think. I saw a list of, I think, seven dispensations, and I, anyway, they said they went for the for the Old Testament people. How did they get to be saved? Okay. Well, what can you do to be saved? You know, we didn't have Jesus yet, right? We couldn't ask Jesus for human sin. Okay. the The answer to that is is basically answered in the book of Romans as well. Believers were saved in the Old Testament by grace through faith. The prime example is Abraham. Mm -hmm. And that's what Paul uses as an example of an Old Testament believer. Remember, Abraham is before the law. Now, Paul uses Abraham because he's the father, essentially, of the 
nation of Israel, he could have used Adam as well. He could have used Enoch. He could have used others before Abraham. He could have used Noah and developed the same principle. He chooses Abraham. So the Old Testament saints are saved on the same basis. So when we speak of dispensations, there are some common elements that persist throughout the ages, but the dispensations emphasize the distinctions and the differences. And we're living in a particular age or a particular dispensation, and this is what this passage is all about. It's different from the era or the age of the Old Testament in a broad sense. And even within the Old Testament, there are different dispensations. A dispensation is, in fact, the word basically means an administration. In other words, a way that God is administering his plan, and he does it differently or has done it differently in time. And there's even a future dispensation that the New Testament talks about. And also you can find it in the Old Testament. Now you're talking about salvation. Yes, yes. When Abraham believed, he believed what God said about a future deliverer or a future Messiah. So also Adam, back to the salvation issue. Adam believed Genesis 3.15 that from the seed of the woman would come one that would defeat Satan and deal with the issue of sin. And there might have been, for Adam, other elements that God revealed personally, but that's from Scripture at least what Adam believed. So the Old Testament, as Photios is pointing out, believed in what God would do for the issue of sin in the future, When Christ died on the cross, we believe that what he did in the past is the means of salvation. So that's the distinction between the two dispensations, but it's still by grace through faith in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Okay? But now we're talking about living it out. We're talking about after we have trusted in Christ, now we are new creatures in Christ, How do we live that out? And in chapter 7, one of the issues that we have is if we try to do it on the basis of legalistic observance to the law, we're abusing the law. The law was never intended, even for Israel, to basically sanctify them. They're called to obey. They're called to do the specifics. And some have counted 613 laws. And they were expected to do them, but one of the main purposes of the law was not to sanctify. One of the purposes was to show them how short they fall from the law and how much they need the saving work of the Messiah. So the purpose of the law was not intended to sanctify. That didn't mean they were free not to obey it. They were in covenant to obey it. But the law didn't sanctify them, and it doesn't sanctify us as well. So it cannot sanctify believers. So we spent some time, and I'll review some of that. So he asked the question, what shall we say then? He's raising the issue concerning the law, because he somewhat left a negative impression. We're released from it. There must be something wrong with it. It's associated. In fact, he's going to make some strong statements. The law essentially... 
is aggravated by sin, and there seems to be a, a relationship there. So does that mean that there's something wrong with the law, and he wants to correct that? Is the law sin, for example? Or is there something wrong with the law? He could have asked the same question, but he goes to the extreme. Is the law sin? And obviously he answers it with a strong negation that we've seen over and over in the book of Romans. May it never be. Or are you insane? Is there something wrong with your mind to think this even? On the contrary, he's going to explain. So now in the latter part of chapter 7, verse 7, and verse 8, he's going to lay out the purpose of the law. Or at least that's the emphasis of those that verse and a half. So on the contrary, in other words... No, you have a wrong idea concerning the law. I would not, in fact, what he's going to do is take an example. I would not have come to no sin except through the law. That was one of the main purposes of the law in the Old Testament, and it's the main purpose of the law today. So we don't abandon the law. That's antinomianism, even though there are some in the church today that take that view, and I gave you a name of one. And unfortunately, he's used quite a bit in this church. But antinomianism is not the answer. You don't abandon the law because it still has use. And this is the main purpose and the main use that we can derive from it. By reading the law, we see the extent and the the uh, damage of law. And we, we are exposed to areas where we fall short, even today. The answer is not now, oh, okay, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'm going to start obeying this thing in my own strength and in my own will. That's legalism. That's the other extreme. So when we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that there's power available. In fact, I've got a chart, or maybe I didn't include it this time. can't remember. So I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So he's going to begin to, to lay out these contrasts. The law is not sin. He's going to answer that. So he's going to lay out the value of the law in this the rest of this passage. I didn't show you this slide. I showed you another one that I'll show you in a moment when we got started into the passage last time. We'll begin with that key Old Testament passage that we already looked at, and we won't review it, but let me just remind you that Psalm 19, 7 through 9 is one of the strongest passages, both Old Testament and New Testament, on the inerrancy of Scripture. And in that, he uses several synonyms to describe Scripture. He calls it the law, he calls it the commandments, he calls it uh, stipulations, or what was the other word? Several words in there to essentially emphasize the perfection and the inerrancy of not only the law, but scripture in general. So it's just like any other piece of scripture, any other passage. It is inspired of God and it is inerrant. So you don't throw away that that is inerrant. It has inherent value no matter the age, no matter the time frame. So we don't rip it out of our Bibles as Andy Stanley proposes in his book. And verse 7 tells us the great value in this context and elsewhere. In fact, he's already stated this in chapter 5, that the value is that it reveals sin. It's a revealer of sin. And if you went back to 
chapter 2, verse 18, there's another verse where Paul alludes to insight that is gained or revelation that is gained from the Old Testament. Keep in mind, at the time of the writing of the book of Romans, there was no New Testament. There was only a handful of books written to particular churches. book of Galatians was written to the Galatians. And it's not known how widespread it had gone through the rest of the church elsewhere. Not all of the Gospels were written by the time the book of Romans were written. Obviously, the book of Romans wasn't written. The scriptures were the Old Testament, including the law. So those were, that's what the scriptures were. So the Old Testament designed to reveal sin and the law specifically. And we've looked at the purpose of the law, the revelation of God's nature. This is the value today. It reveals something of who God is, particularly his holiness, his sinlessness, his standards. In fact, that's the second thing. It's a revelation of God's standards. What does God expect from his people? And we learn from the law because it also reveals sin that we can't meet those standards. If you were a Jew, it was intended to basically frustrate you. How can I keep these 613 laws? Well, I can't. And that was the problem that Paul faced. When he came, he says, oh, I can check the boxes. I haven't murdered anyone. Now, if he really... (laughs) Yet. (laughs) He checked the box. He sent others to do that. But he might check the box. And what does Jesus say? Jesus goes to the heart of that commandment. Now, Paul doesn't use it as an example, but if you have wrong anger or sinful anger towards someone else, that's the heart of that commandment. Okay? So the Jews were able to take a superficial view of the law, check off the boxes. I didn't literally put somebody to death. Okay? I didn't literally rob somebody of their possessions. I didn't literally do all these things. And then in this passage, we're going to see he came to the Ten Commandment, and it went to his heart. It went inwardly, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And we'll see that when we get there. So it's a revelation of sin. Now, the first three is the value today and the purpose that it serves today. So we can read the law. We don't apply it in the same way, but it can basically reveal God's nature, it can reveal God's standards, and it can reveal sin today in the church age. So there's value there. It also, in the Old Testament, this is specific to the nation of Israel, it was the basis of a relationship to God. In other words, this was the means by which God and men came together. The sacrificial system was for fellowship, not for salvation. It was for fellowship with a holy God. So you brought a sacrifice because you sinned continuously. So you brought a sacrifice to restore that relationship. And you had annual sacrifices. You had everyday sacrifices, essentially. So it regulated that relationship, but that was a different era. That part is not applicable to the church today. Because of what Jesus did, he settled the issue of sin in the past, as unbelievers for for us, and also the issue of sin in the future as well. So it's on the basis of what Christ has done. Not We don't bring sacrifices. Instead, what we have is 1 John 1, 9. 
if you confess your sin. In other words, acknowledge it. He is faithful and just to forgive you on this ongoing family relationship. Does that make sense? And on that basis, you are restored to fellowship. You're not saved by 1 John 1, 9. You are restored. So that's different because we're not under law. That's the idea here. And for Israel, it was the rule of God. I'm using R as an alliteration here. What I mean by that is they were under covenant. The law regulated everything in the culture, all the way down to toilets. (laughs) Every aspect of the Jewish life was regulated. Their diet, their social life, their political life, Their personal life, every aspect was regulated by the law. That's what I mean by rule. It was a covenant. It was their constitution. We are not under that constitution. That's what Paul means. We're not under law. It does not mean, oh, we're not under law. Let me rip out the Old Testament from my Bible. Okay? So, the contrast that he's contrasting through this passage is sin's sinfulness. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with indwelling sin. And in this context, he uses sin in the singular, and he uses it most often with the article. So he's talking about the sin in a general way. He's not talking about individual sins, individual violations. But he's talking about sin as a, he'll use the word law later on, or as a principle. And I think what he's referring to is the sin nature. So you might even substitute the sin, and you could add in parentheses nature. And the sinful passions, he's already stated in verse 5, if you went back and looked at it, we covered that one. Sinful passions are working, so... Through this passage, he's contrasting sin and law. Law is good, sin is bad. The problem is not with the law, the problem is with indwelling sin. He's going to expand upon that in the next passage, in beginning in 13. So, 7-7, he brings to the forefront awareness of sin. So the law is good in that it brings an awareness of sin. Otherwise, we're blinded to it. Because of the sinfulness of sin, our nature is such that we suppress it. You know, he started the theological discussion, verse 18. We suppress the truth. We suppress sin as well. Verse 8, I think a pretty good analogy. Now, there is a lab test to see if you've got seracusis in the hobgoblin. Now, how could that test can't make it well? doesn't mean it's failed. It's done its job of telling you that you've got right. seracosis of the hobgoblin. And you have to go see another doctor to find out what to do about it. Yeah, excellent illustration. It is so good that I'm going to use it later on in, in the... Oh, let me give you a quirk. <laughs> a very good illustration. We'll get to that. Okay, so verse 7. For I would not have known about coveting. Now he's taking the Tenth Commandment. He doesn't give the specifics in terms of coveting other person's property and wife, etc. He just alludes to it because it went to the heart. He couldn't check the box. In other words, it dealt with the inner man. The others, 
you could externalize and look at them superficially, but this one you couldn't. So he takes the 10th commandment, and I would not have known about coveting the reality of it, the significance of it, and then he goes on, if the law had not said, if the law had not said you shall not covet, and I'm not going to go over this, but gone over this word before, the word coveting is the common word that occurs very frequently, epithumia, and that can be used in a good sense, and I've mentioned that it's used of Jesus desiring good things, Paul desiring good things for the Philippians in the book of Philippians, in Mark 4.19, it's a neutral sense, in a good sense, Luke 22.15, and then Paul in Philippians 1.23, but the majority of the uses are in a negative sense, and it's translated in different ways. Epithumia can be translated as lusts, and even that, it's not always sexual, depending on the context, but it's the basic word to have a desire. And it's, a, in this case, a sinful desire, a wrong desire. Now, desire in and of itself is not sin, is not evil, kind of like emotions. Emotions in and of themselves are not evil, even anger. Paul commands in Ephesians 4, be angry. It's in the imperative. It's a command. Be angry. And then he adds, but do not sin. So it can become sin. Similarly, epithumia can be a good desire. And Jesus never sinned, and he had desires. The word is used in that context. But more often it's used in a bad sense. It can be used in the sense of lust. Not always sexual, but sometimes. It can be used of evil, and sometimes it's translated evil desire. It's sinful desire or harmful desires. I've given you those examples. First Timothy 6, 9, 2 Timothy 4, 3. This context, it uses the word coveting. And more specifically, desiring that that does not belong to us and belongs to someone else. In other words, I wish I had that, that nice car or that nice house or those clothes or whatever, or those looks or that personnel or whatever the case may be. So often the problem is just with, with, just with priorities. I don't know anything with violence that you can't. Uh, wish to have a good play, a, a good game of golf. Yep. The problem comes when I'm more concerned about my golf game than I am with my relationship with Jesus Christ. That's yeah. right. And that's when it's coveting. And I like to say that I don't have those problems. But right. My nose would get in my way uh, if I did. Yeah, and there's a fine line there. You know, good things are desirable and there's nothing wrong with them, but it crosses the line into sinful desires as well, as Galatians 5 indicates. So anyway, that's the word. You shall not covet. That's the word. It is, in fact, it's used in both the noun form and the verb form. Yep. Yep. That's often the case. And that's sometimes when you cross the line. And the law is able to distinguish that for us and reveal to us the sinful aspect. But, and then he says, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. Sin is operating here. Notice the emphasis. It's sin that is doing this. It's taking advantage of a good thing. Taking opportunity through the commandment. He's separating here, distinguishing the goodness of the commandment in this case, referring to the tenth, and in general, all of the commandments. Distinguishing that from sin, 
It produced in me coveting of all kinds. So the law, the value of it, it from this verse, it's not only inerrant, it does not only reveal sin, but here it's an instrument of God. And it's abused in this case. Something that God has provided that is good and has a purpose and a use. It's his instrument to produce certain things. In this case, it's abused. And you have the repetition of the same idea in verse 11 and 1 Timothy 1.8. We don't have time to look at it. But that basically says the law basically is good if it's used rightly or used in a right way. So there's value to the law if it's used properly, just like any tool. You can use a tool in a wrong way and do more damage than any correction that you're trying to accomplish. So to use the law for sanctification is a misuse. And in this case, we have the use of the law by sin. In other words, our own inward sin nature can use the law to accomplish negative things. So taking opportunity to the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind, it intensified the coveting. Because now it says you can't do this, and what do children do? Don't stick string beans up your nose. <laughs> and what's the first right. thing they want to do? <laughs> Why not? Let me see. Now that you told me about it, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yep, you've seen it, your children. So sin's sinfulness, it not only brings awareness, but it produces coveting or intensifies coveting, we could say, in that it arouses within us Okay, now I know about coveting. Yeah, but okay, now now it's intensified. Okay? For apart from the law, sin is dead. And what he means, remember we've said deadness here is not ceasing of breathing. Now he's using it in a more non-personal way. Basically, it has no power. It has no effect. If there's no prohibition, then there's no effect. And that's what he means that it is dead. And then 9 through 11, and we can go through this quickly, it results in death. Sin results in death, not the law. And we have one long sentence, 9 through 11, and I've used this slide just to kind of illustrate how it's kind of broken down here. I was once alive apart from the law, semicolon, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died, semicolon, one phrase after another, or one clause after another. Verse 10, and this commandment which was result to, to result in life proved to result in death for me, semicolon. See how it's all strung together? And he's just one statement after another statement, contrasting, contrasting, contrasting. We'll look through it slower. For sin, taking an opportunity, there it is again, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. But it's the sin within me that latches on and takes the deception. And through it killed me. So in this passage, talking about me dying, verse 9, the end of 9, and I died, the end of verse 11, it killed me. So you might say, well, the law seems to be something bad here. No, it's the sin that uses the law. Then 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Remember I've been saying all along, when he uses life and death, He's not talking about just merely physically breathing and living and dying, not just physically ceasing to breathe, but living in this broader sense. 
In other words, I, I was very active. I could do whatever I felt like I wanted to do. I was the captain of my own life and what I decided I would do. Then all of a sudden the law came in. But when the commandment came in, sin became alive and I died. It killed me. Not the law, but sin. When the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. It brought death and it brought awareness of my lack of ability to please God. It brought awareness that I stood condemned before a holy God. Or it brought reality as a believer that I can't do these things that God expects to be sanctified. So another add, added note that we can put under sin, sinfulness, verse 9, sin became alive and I died. It's sin that killed me, not the law. And then verse 10, and this commandment, which was to result in life, that's key there, The perp- this is another purpose of the law. It, it promoted life. It couldn't give life, but encouraged, and it promoted, and God intended it to be a light, like it says in the Old Testament. Thy law is a lamp to my feet. It was intended to say, this is what's going to be beneficial for you. This is what's going to profit you. This is what's going to enhance your life. It's intended to be those things. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to bring death. So we could say it promotes life. That's the positive. The value of the law, it was, it's intended even now to give us insight into what is good and what is evil. We could use the analogy. There's the law of gravity. Okay? Are we under the law of gravity? Yeah. Yep. Are we free to violate the law of gravity? Yeah. We can try, but it'll catch up to us. I'm going to be free to jump off this 10-story building because I'm free <coughs> in Christ. Well, what does the law of gravity do? Well, I can't overcome it. I don't have the ability. It's going to drop me down, and it's going to kill me. Okay? That's like sin. And that's like and the death part is the result of the violation, but it's also like law. It can tell me what I can do, but I don't have the ability to do it. But it is intended to promote life. Another verse that you can use is Psalm 119.50, where it talks about essentially the same thing. So it proved to result in death for me. And the use of the law or the commandment by sin. And then verse 11, for sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. So he's developing the sinfulness of sin, and then again, and through it, killed me. See the contrast that he's drawing through? So verse 11, sin deceived me, killed me. Sin, Verse 9, sin became alive, I died. Verse 11, sin deceived me, killed me. It's sin that is the destructive force here. And then verse 12, we have the integrity of the law and the commandments. So then, here's his conclusion. He's gone through the contrasts. The great conclusion here, the problem is with sin. The problem is not with the law. And he's going to expand that. The problem is with indwelling sin. He's going to start in verse 13. We won't get to that today. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's the value of the law. That's God's perspective of the law. That's the proper view of the law. 
We've already seen that it's not only inerrant. The value is it reveals sin. God can use it if it's used properly. Now, in the context, it's used by sin in a negative way. It's intended to promote life. That's that's the law. And now it's holy and righteous, verse 12. And not only that, but last word there, it's good. And he's going to use good in three more passages. Verse 13 that we'll get into next week. Verse 16. And by the way, in verse 16, he uses a different word for good. So it's not only inherently good, but it's good in that it's beautiful. Kalos. He's using agathos for Potios there in 12 and 13, and then he uses kalos in 16. Kind of the whole spectrum of goodness, if you will. That's the law. Okay? That's the proper view of law. And the analogy that Russ brought up is a little different here. You're all familiar with what kind of a machine is that? It's an MRI machine. And what might you say about the machine? It reveals. It's good. It's good in that it has a purpose and a function, much like the law is good and it has a purpose and a function. What is bad? Not the machine, but the cancer that it reveals. That's what's bad. So do we kick the machine when it reveals cancer? Or do we say, put me through the machine again so that the machine can remove the cancer? That's not the design of the machine. The machine can't remove the cancer. It can't deal with it. All the machine can do is what it's designed, and it's designed to reveal the cancer, to expose it, so that now, through other means, the cancer may be removed, or it's a guide, it's a light to the doctor to guide him. Okay, the cancer is isolated in this location, so I don't have to make a big incision. I can make a smaller one, and I can deal with this problem. It's isolated because the machine has revealed the extent of the the cancer. So there's your illustration, Rush, for us. We can come up with a 12th principle. The law is useful for exposing sin, and it's useful today. And our time is about up. Some closing thoughts. The law is not the problem. We're not under law in that we are not under the Mosaic Covenant, and I think that's the essence. We've been freed from that covenant, but the law still has value today. The problem is not with the law. Sin is the problem. Who wants to close for us? So now we have 12 principles that includes this last passage. Jeremy, you want to close for us? No, we just praise you, Lord. We thank you today, Lord. Um, just that you are our relationship, Lord. Your word, uh, that is good, Lord. That reveals who you are to us. That revelation, I just pray, Lord. Plug into that, Lord, that in time in your word, that, that we would be able to be that good. That, that you. So I just pray you be with us each this week and go on about where we are, Lord. Let your light shine out of us, Lord. And to, you aren't here, again, we look to those who are sick or undergoing trials, Lord. Uh, we pray to you, Lord, let us have faith in you, give us the Holy Spirit, and we pray to you. Amen. Amen.